you'd have to be living under a rock in the last little while to not know that Kobe Bryant's death has had a huge impact on several people in uh, certainly the entertainment industry and in the United States. Um, I was not a big fan of Kobe Bryant as a, a basketball player. He played for the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I grew up a Celtics fan and a Supersonics fan, and so... The Lakers, I wanted, a, I wanted the earthquakes to swallow them up down there at some point. Um, and part of that was him being so good, right? He, he and Shaquille O'Neal were excellent uh, at, in their time. The news, of course, came as a massive shock to me as it did to everyone else. And in the aftermath of his death, uh, lots of people have been recalling the best moments that they can remember from Kobe Bryant. Um, on the court and otherwise, one of, one of the moments that I remember distinctly was he was inbounding a ball at one, or some, the, he was playing defense, and then the other team was inbounding the ball at one point, and he's standing directly across from the guy who's inbounding, and the, the guy kind of wants him to back up and wants to sort of taunt him, and so he takes the ball and does one of these fakes right at his face, right? And Kobe doesn't move. It's like superhuman. Have you ever had something thrown at your face where you're like, whoa, he doesn't do any of that. He just keeps staring at the guy. It's like he's a droid or something. Um, he scored 81 points in a game. I mean, I've, I've done that too, but so it's not that big a deal. But 80, 81 points, the second most in a single game in NBA history. He won five titles with the Los Angeles Lakers. And... Um, one of the things that you do, many people don't know is that after he finished his basketball career, he won an Academy Award in 2018 for a Best Animated Short. He has a movie production company that was doing that sort of thing. He was a really big advocate of women's basketball, largely because he had just daughters. And uh, people would ask him, uh, are you sad that you don't have a son? And he would respond by saying, no, I'm a girl dad. And the hashtag on Twitter that went around everywhere afterwards was girl, girl dad, and the hashtag girl dad, and men were posting pictures of them with their daughters, right, that they were proud that they, that they were the fathers of girls. And uh, he had a huge impact on the lives of lots and lots of people. Lots of stories have been shared about what he had done. The question I heard repeated on a lot of the sports news was, will there ever be another Kobe Bryant? I mean, what, he leaves such a huge hole in the Los Angeles community. He leaves such a huge hole in uh, the women's basketball scene. He leaves such a huge hole for the Los Angeles Lakers. And, uh, but will there ever be another Kobe Bryant? I bring all of that up because I kind of want to give you a feeling for what it was like for people in Israel at the time that Elijah departed the scene. Elijah was an amazing man. I mean, he has Kobe beat on almost every ground. He did far more than score a bunch of points and win a bunch of basketball titles. This guy was, he saw some amazing things and the Lord used him in some amazing ways. One of the most famous, of course, about Elijah is at the time there was a king in Israel named Ahab and his wife Jezebel who had led the nation away from worship of the one true God Yahweh and instead had helped people start worshiping the God Baal. Lots and lots of prophets of Baal were around. They erected temples to Baal and uh, worship places, altars to Baal. Baal was a storm god. He was supposed to provide the rain, but they were in a massive drought, and so they kept worshiping Baal, worshiping Baal, worshiping Baal. Finally, Elijah, who was the single prophet of Yahweh, said, listen, I'm done, done with this. Let's have a contest. You guys keep appealing to Baal. 
to bring the rain. I'm going to appeal to Yahweh to bring the rain, and we'll see which God answers. So they go up on this mount. It's kind of a hill, Mount Carmel. They have a big altar set up there. And prophets of Baal go first, crying out to their God, and they march around the altar, (laughs) slashing themselves. Look at how much we care, Baal. Look at how much we're willing to do to get you to answer our pleas for your help. But nothing, nothing from heaven happens. It's actually a scene where Elijah's on the sidelines and he's taunting them. You know, maybe he went on a holiday. You should yell louder. He's probably in the bathroom. I'm not, that's actually in the Bible. I've sanitized what's actually there for you. I mean, he's not, he's being a real taunter. <clears throat> Finally, he says, you know, enough. He's not answers. Like a day and a half of these guys. Enough. My turn. So he stands up, prays a simple prayer to God. Yahweh, he, he prays. Show these people what you got. Fire from heaven comes down on the altar. He then prays uh, that the rain would come and a little cloud emerges in the distance and it comes and it comes over the people and the rain comes. And Ahab, the king, has watched this whole scene. And Elijah thinks, oh, finally, everyone in Israel and the king himself has seen what God can do. There's only one God in Israel, and his name is Yahweh, and the entire nation is going to turn back to that, that God. And Ahab's like, yeah, it's a pre- you got a pretty good case, so I'm going to go back to my home, and I'm going to talk to my wife, Jezebel, just you know, make sure things are good. And he gets in his chariot and starts riding quite a distance between where they were in Carmel to the, to the city of Jezreel, where, where the king's palace was. Ahab is riding in a chariot. Elijah is on foot, and he just flat outruns them. Like Usain bolts them, right? He gets there in the end. And he's standing there waiting outside the doors of the palace, waiting to hear, are we all turning back to the living God now? Are we going to abandon our ways with Baal now? Well, he gets word from a messenger coming from Jezebel, who's heard from her husband Ahab about this whole event. And the messenger says, hey, uh, Elijah, you might want to run because she wants to kill you. And so he takes off running. At the end of his life, uh, he gets sucked up into heaven by a whirlwind. In fact, that's the passage that we're, we're in here, just before the passage that we want to study. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, as they were walking alongside and talking together, he and this guy Elisha, who is his protege, suddenly a chariot of fire And horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He's going to miss him. And he longs for him. Even though he expected this to happen, he was told beforehand, Elisha, that this was going to take place. And now it's happening. And he's, can anyone replace Elijah? Elijah. Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. His own garment's the way that you show that you're really, you're really sorrowful and you're mourning. And so he rips his own garment in two. In verse 13, Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And seriously, as Elisha is standing there, he's remembering that only a few minutes before, when Elijah came across from the other side of the Jordan, he was wearing this cloak. He took the cloak, touched the Jordan River, and it parted, and they walked through on dry ground. 
So Elisha now has got the same cloak that fell down through the whirlwind in his hand, and he's thinking, I wonder if I can Harry Potter this thing, right? And do the little magic or whatever, and he touches it with the cloak. He took the cloak, verse 14, fallen from Elijah, struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and the left, and he crossed over. And the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, in answer to the question, the spirit of Elijah is now resting on Elisha. And they went out to meet him, and they bowed to, ground, to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able guys here. Let, let us go out and look for your master. I mean, perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down in some mountain or some valley. Maybe he's stuck in Canada or something. I mean, who knows? We should, but we can look for him. Because sometimes this happens to Elijah. He runs with super speed, calls down fire from heaven. He's probably still alive. Let us look for him. Of course, Elisha's like, he's not alive. You guys don't get it. The power has been moved from him to me now. God has moved from him to me now. But they keep pushing. No, Elisha replied, don't send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. It's like, you know, sometimes you want to pay the check for the meal. And no, I'll pay for it. No, 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 let me pay. No, I'll pay for it. No, 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 let me pay. I'll pay for it. Let me pay. Okay, now we're arguing about this. And in the end, you're like, okay, you pay. It's all part of your ploy, right? That's what happens. No, let us look. Let us look. Let us look. Don't you look. Let us look. Let, fine. Go and look. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but didn't find him. And when they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, told you so. But the question that you should have on your mind is, that, like, what's going to happen? Can anyone replace Elijah? Can God work through anybody else? In the absence of this great hero, will God's plans be able to come to fruition? And what you'll find in this passage in the end is, is that God's plans don't depend on people. God's plans depend on God. So that's the point we're going to make in the end, but I want to build up to it by uh, two scenes, okay? There are two scenes in this story, kind of to reinforce that, hey, this Elisha is the real deal. The two scenes are first, the healing of the waters, and second, the mauling of the boys. That'll be fun. Okay, and then finally, I want to come back and make the same point I just made, that God's plans don't depend on people. God's plans depend on God, all right? So let's look at the first scene, the healing of the waters. Look at verse 19. The people of the city, now the city is Jericho, that's where he's been, waiting for these guys to come back from their trip that he didn't want them to take, looking for Elijah. The people of the city, they said to Elisha, look, our Lord. It's an interesting title, isn't it? I mean, that's a noble title for a man of God. Look, we recognize that you have power, the kind of power that Elijah had, so we've got a problem. And you can help. Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. And we're near a really good water source here, but the water that comes out of it is having problems, it's causing the land to be unproductive. So Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and then 
He went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive, and the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha has spoken. What? What's going on here? Well, let's answer a couple questions. Um, number one, what's going on with the water? Why, why is it bad? Jericho is situated by a really good spring, and the water should be good, but instead it's bad, and it's leading to what he, he calls unproductive land. That word unproductive in Hebrew, which is the original language for this, what, what we're reading here, that, lang- that word in Hebrew means causes barrenness. So the land causes barrenness. That's the problem. So for some reason, the water comes up and the land is causing barrenness. That could either mean that the land itself doesn't produce any food, but most scholars think it means the land is causing women to be barren. That actually the death of their children is the product of this faulty, defiled spring. So, I know why that's happening. And you would know why that's happening if you knew your Old Testament really well. If you go back to Joshua chapter 6, one of the things that you see is that Joshua put a curse on Jericho. Remember, he comes across the Jordan River and he sees Jericho and it's got big massive walls and they march around it a bunch of times and then the walls fall down. At the end of that whole scene, Joshua says this. At that time, Joshua pronounced his sol- this solemn oath. He said, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. The cost of his youngest, he will set up his, his gates. Right? So your children are going to die as a result of you doing. That's the curse. And now you've got water coming out of a spring And the result is a bunch of babies are being killed. A bunch of miscarriages are taking place. So the land is under a curse. So what's Elisha's solution? Well, he takes this clean bowl. He throws some salt in it. And he throws it on the spring. Why is he using salt? Well, actually, the covenant God made with Israel, right? So he comes to Abraham all those years ago, and he says to Abraham, listen, I'm, you're going to be a great nation, and you're going to be my guy, and your nation is going to be mine. We're going to have a special relationship. In fact, I'm going to make a deal with you, and the deal is going to be depend wholly on me. I will always pursue you. I will always come after you. Even if you screw everything up, I'm going to keep coming after you. And whenever you repent, whenever you turn back to me, you will receive great blessing." But when you don't and you go the other way, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to try to pull you back. That covenant was called in the Bible at some point the covenant of salt. Prove it to you. 2 Chronicles 13 verse 5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Leviticus 2.13, season all your grain offerings with salt. Don't leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So you see what's happening here? He's basically saying, oh, you have a defiled spring due to a curse. Well, I'm going to throw the salt of the covenant back on it because you have called out to me, a man of God. You've called out to Yahweh, the one true God in Israel, and you've turned your hearts around and said, we've got a massive problem, and the only one who can solve it is our God of the covenant. Which 
all means this. God can clean what's defiled, but only after it's acknowledged that it's defiled. God can clean whatever is defiled, but only after it's acknowledged that it's defiled. You know how, you, you know, you know how when you grow up, you're, uh, you really hate baths. Don't you? Like when you're two years old or four years old or whatever, your parents come to you and say, it's time for you to take a bath. You're like, I don't think so. Right? I had one of those two weeks ago. Right? And I'm, I'm still good. And they're like, no, you're not good. The whole fly is following you and it's disgusting. And everywhere you go, you smell. So you need to get in the bath. I drew the bath and you need to go get in it. And then they run around and, no, oh, you know, cry and sorts of things. Because they don't, they don't recognize that they need cleaning. Now, at some point in their lives, you pray, uh, they, they eventually realize that while they're sitting there on the couch and they're like, what is that smell? And they, you know, maybe they're 12 or 13 years old and they're sitting next to the girl or the guy and they're like, man, he stinks. But they realize it's not he who stinks, it's they stink. And they're like, oh my goodness, I smell. And so then they go take a shower, they go take a bath and then they try to, they overcompensate at that point and they take like six a day because they're freaking out, you know, and they put axe all over everything all the time, right? And some, some people, no, no, I just saw some people over here go, nuts, nuts, that's awesome. All right, we'll focus over here for a minute. Um, that's great. Well, the point is, though, is that what causes you to get clean is knowledge that you're, that you're not, the knowledge that you're dirty, so here's the, here's the question you have to answer for yourself, right? You show up to church and stuff like that. Deep down in your heart, do you think you've got it all together? Or deep down in your heart, do you realize that you need saving? Now, your answer to that question is going to dictate an awful lot on how you listen to me. It's going to dictate an awful lot on how you see your need for any of this. It certainly is going to dictate your response to Jesus. Jesus is a perfect gentleman, if you don't think you need him, he'll be like, yeah, okay, you can have what you want. But if you're someone who says, listen, I, I am well situated, like this town, I am well situated in the sense that from the outside looking in, I should be able to produce all sorts of good things. There should be springs of goodness coming out of me. But what's actually happening is whenever I try to bring the spring, it's not goodness, but bad. It's defilement that comes out. And I have a way of ruining my relationships, and I have a way of ruining the things I tend to touch. I should, it looks like I should be able to do this, but I can't do it. I don't know why. Oh, God, help me. And when you turn to the Lord and you say those words, you are qualified for the Lord Jesus. But if, on the other hand, you're like, no, 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 all that I'm doing is a big show. That's why I come to church, is so that everybody knows I got it together. And deep down inside, you're like, I got it together. And I, Jesus doesn't have a lot for you. I mean, you're lying to yourself. But you'll always keep Jesus at arm's length. See, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. Revelation 21, verse 6, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So what's the condition for getting the water? Thirst. 
Are you thirsty? Then you're qualified. So Elisha's going to bring blessing, yeah? That's not all he's going to bring. <laughs> Here's the second story. Uh, mauling the boys. Verse 23. Uh, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel, about 25 kilometers away. It's like going to Langley. <laughs> Just, that's <laughs> okay. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and they jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy! They said, get out of here, baldy! So he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Right? Every bald man said, I love the Bible. This is amazing. Vic Schellenberg's favorite passage right here, right? What is going on? Used to be, there's a guy who was a pastor of our, one of the pastors of our church years ago. He was a, he, he was a good friend and a youth pastor. His name was Sean. And uh, he was from Ontario. And uh, I remember we, the, the pastoral staff went up to Whistler for a, uh, a, some, a retreat. And we, as a whole staff, we went and played uh, golf at the Whistler Golf Club. And uh, I remember being on one of the tees with my foursome that, that had Sean in it. And on the green was just a short par three, just short little hole, and uh, we were there getting ready to hit, and, and as we looked up, we could see that the, the green was surrounded by woods, and out of the woods came two bear cubs, and they came up right to the, near the hole, and we were like, we shouldn't hit, and Sean turned around, and he looked, and he went, oh, you know, he's from Ontario, he's never really seen bears before, and he's like, oh my goodness, and he starts running toward them with a golf club in his hand, right? And he's turning around saying, take a picture, take a picture. And the rest of us are like, what? Stop, stop, stop. He gets all the way to the edge of the green. And of course, when he gets there, mama bear, she bear comes out of the woods. And she stands, she comes out, stands right up, looks dead at him. He stopped, soiled himself, turned around and ran as fast as he could back. And he's yelling, let's play the next hole. Let's play the next hole, right? Rule number one, when you move to British Columbia... Don't mess with the bears, right? Don't mess with the bears. Because they might, they might eat you. And here's a good example. In this case, the bears are called out by a prophet and they eat 42 shawns. Yikes, this is in the Bible? This is in the Bible. Some people, when they read this, they're like, oh, I never saw that before. This is in the Bible. And of course, this is the kind of story that causes all sorts of skeptics to mock Christianity and say, you guys actually believe the Bible? Do you know what's in it? Have you read this story? And so there's, a, there's a, a little book called The Awkward Moments Bible, and it's there to mock this Christianity and how stupid the Bible is. This is their rendition of it. It's a, a cartoon. Those apparently are the she-bears. They're two guys who are really hairy, and the rest of them are a bunch of children who are mauled in a big pile, and over on the side is bald Elisha with like the emperor from Star Wars, you know, we feel the power of the dark side. And he's just giving it to him, right? You guys believe a book that has that story in it? It's immoral. It's outdated. It's absurd. It's 2020, guys. Come on. Stop, stop believing this stupid book with its stupid stories. So what do we do? What in the world is going on here? So let's, let's take a closer look at it. Uh, I told you first that Bethel 
This town was 25 kilometers away from, from Jericho, and it was, unlike Jericho, a hotbed, a hotbed for distaste for Yahweh. So Jericho had turned its mind around and said, actually, we need help. But Bethel knew way. They had all sorts of altars to Baal and other gods and goddesses. They had wanted to have nothing to do with Yahweh. In fact, Hosea, one of the prophets, called uh, Bethel the house of wickedness because of all the idolatry that was there. So these, these boys, these young people who are growing up in this setting are growing up being tutored in a distaste for Yahweh, in a rebellion against Yahweh. It says in the passage that, that they are some boys. In the King James Version, it says children. That's, te- that's a terrible translation of this term. This term is, is used to refer to young men, usually in their 20s, right? So it can be kids, people, someone from anywhere from the age of 12 to 30, but usually is used for men in their, in their 20s. So we're talking about a, a bunch of millennials here, right? Antifa, right? We're in their blundstones there coming out from their city. And there's 42 of them, we learn. That's usually what we call a mob, right? A mob of 42 young men, and they are chanting and pursuing Elisha. Now, I know they're pursuing Elisha because it says that they come out from the city, and when they come upon Elisha, he says, it says he has to turn around to see them. So he's walking away, they're pursuing him, and they're chanting, get out of here, baldy! What does that mean? Baldy. Well, that was a well-used taunt in those days. Uh, baldness was never chosen by, by people in Israel. It was always a result in their minds of sin against God. Still is, so it's just kidding. <laughs> so if you had baldness, it was thought that you had leprosy or some sort of ceremonial uncleanliness. You, you were kind of treated as an outcast, somebody who's on the edge edge of the society as a whole. We don't, we don't need to, you're, you're untouchable, you know, in the eyes of like the caste system. And so they come out and they use this, this phrase, baldy, which is, I, I don't know, I'm, I thought of several contemporary equivalents, but all of them would get me fired, right? So you can think of them yourself. I, maybe this will help. Um, when I was about 12 years old, 13 maybe, I remember riding the bus back from my middle school to my house, and uh, there were no seats on the bus except one seat next to the prettiest girl, most popular girl in our school. And she was turned around talking to her friends in the seat, and, and it was the only one left. So I kind of sat down with, you know, with one cheek on and one cheek <laughs> off, and I sat straight forward, and I was close to the goddess. And so I was sitting there, and I was not at all in, in that realm of, of, you know, popularity. And so I was sitting there, and she kept talking to her friends, but she didn't really know I was there. Um, and she kept rubbing her backside on my shoulder, right, because she kept doing this. I don't, she just, because she was, she was talking to people around, and she was moving a lot. And I, every time, she, I, it was so awkward. I was being touched by her bum repeatedly. <laughs> and, I, and I was sitting there sweating, 
thinking to myself, what's going on? Now, now that morning, you know how sometimes you have, uh, when you're that age, you have a pimple on the worst possible day, right? Picture day or whatever. That morning, I had woken up with, with Mount Vesuvius on my nose, and, and there it still was in all its, in all its white glory, st- sitting there, snow-capped peak, and I'm... I'm sitting there, and she finally realizes that somebody's behind her, and she's rubbing up against something. She looks over. She sees me. She sees the volcano, and she says, ew, don't touch me, pus face. Right, so okay, that's, that's close, yeah? That's close. Get out of here, pus face. And this taunting, you notice in the passage, was repeated. He's not just said once, it's said a couple times, which indicates that it was probably over and over and over again. It's the summary of the author saying, get out of here, pus face. Get out of here, pus face. Get out of here, pus face. While they're pursuing him and their 42 young men mob. And that phrase, get out of here. In the NIV, that's, what, that's how they translate this. It's not actually what it says. It says in Hebrew, go on up. Go on up, baldy. That's the same phrase that's used to describe what happened to Elijah when he got sucked up into the whirlwind. And from their perspective, that means he died, yes? So what they're saying is, go ahead and die like the guy who came before you. Die already, baldy. So here's a summary of all of it put together. What you have here is a mob of young men from a city openly opposing Yahweh who hear that Yahweh's new prophet is just outside of town, so they assemble their mob and they pursue him. When they catch him, they repeatedly yell, go up, Baldy, or die already, pus face. So what kinds of conclusions can we have here? Well, first, Elisha might very well be in danger. In fact, he probably is. Their pursuit, their repeated chanting, the number of capable dudes who can beat him up and his desire or their desire for his death is is troubling. Uh, I I watched a a, uh, documentary a number of years ago on uh, English soccer hooligans. So uh, the way it works in English football, uh, I'm a big supporter of a team called Arsenal and they're in North London, and their rivals are Tottenham Hotspur. And Tottenham Hotspur and, and Arsenal go at it all the time. The way that it works, though, is they, they play on the pitch, but they also have supporters who get together after the games and have fights. But the fights are kind of organized. The lead supporter from the Arsenal hooligans will contact the lead supporter of Spurs hooligans, and they'll say, hey, can we meet in the park later and you know, bring your guys and beat each other up? And that, seriously, and they will go and they will, they will do this. So what you've got here is an example of, of maybe, uh, say I go with all my arsenal gear decked out. I've been told that, hey, we're supposed to meet out in the park. I show up a few minutes early because I don't want to miss the thrashing. And there's nobody there. But while I'm walking through the park, 42 Spurs fans come out from, from behind the rock, un, from under the rock where they hide, right? And they come out and there they are. Am I in trouble? Well, I mean, they're Spurs fans, so no. But yes, I'm in trouble. I'm in great danger. But the difference here is it's not my, my, his allegiance to a particular sports team or the fact that his hair is short or whatever. Elisha is their target because he's the prophet of Yahweh. 
They're mocking him because he represents the God they despise. And what happens in Scripture when the enemies of the Lord dare challenge him or his people? Well, you should have asked the Pharaoh of Egypt that question, yeah? Ten rounds, death of the firstborn, swallowed up in the Red Sea. At the end of the Bible, you get the battle of Armageddon where all the nations of the earth decide to array their armies against God himself. And I don't want to give anything away here. It's not much of a fight. God shows up, lays waste to all of it, and the Bible in Revelation actually says the birds of the air are going to come down and eat the flesh of the corpses in the field. So how do we apply this? I mean, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'll give you a couple of applications to this little story. Uh, number one, you probably should take a closer look before you judge the Bible as outdated and ridiculous. There's usually stuff going on in the background of the story to make it very much make sense. Usually the way it's portrayed by us or the Canaanites are these lovely, awesome people, and that's why they, God should never have judged them. Rubbish. You read the Bible and you come to realize, no, actually they are... They are opposing God in the harshest of ways and sacrificing their children. And God judges them. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, consider well your attitude toward God and his church. I know we live in a day where mockery of scripture and God is cool. Let's watch Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Christians are so stupid with all their rules and all their beliefs about these things and sexual ethics and, you know, and, and Jesus coming back. <laughs> mock, mock, mock. But I'm telling you, the Lord has an impressive record against those who arrogantly oppose him instead of humbly receive the amnesty he offers. Like you want to be on the right side of history? You should probably be on the side of the one who's writing it. You see these two stories, though? What they're basically saying at the beginning of this guy's ministry is, hey, Elisha is going to come, and he's going to bring blessing on those who repent and turn, the, turn away from their idolatry, and he's going to bring cursing on those who remain steadfast in their opposition to Yahweh. And so it is with us. God welcomes anyone, anyone who acknowledges their need. But if you want to fight, just be careful who you're calling down the fight from. I said that there's one big point that I wanted to make at the end, and it, it, and it is. Okay, so here it is. Uh, I said at the beginning that God's plans depend on God. Uh, here's what I meant. You and I, we, we love celebrities, don't we? Uh, we do. I mean, we watch this Academy Awards so we can see how they can dress. And if you stood next to a celebrity today, you wouldn't probably know what to do because that's what happens, right? I got permission to share this story from one of our pastors, Kyle Meeker, earlier this year uh, or last year, last year in November. We went on a, on a trip to a conference and uh, we were at the Vancouver airport and we were waiting to fly to San Diego. There was a whole, whole group of us and several of us were, ch were checking in at the counter, right, getting our tickets and baggage all sorted. Kyle had already gone through all of that, and he was standing kind of behind us, looking out, watching people go by, and he noticed down the hallway, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right, the former Laker, coming down the hallway. And uh, Kyle grew up 
as a Celtics fan like me, has no time for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, he was okay, but whatever. You know, when he's a young kid, he wanted to tell him all sorts of things. You stink, you're horrible, all sorts of things. And he's a good player, sure, but if you ever had a chance to stand in front of him, you probably would say, <laughs> tell him off. Like, you know, we always say that about kind of the, our anti-sports heroes. And now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is walking down the hallway. He's there with his wife or girlfriend and Kyle's eyes and Kareem's eyes meet. And time freezes. And Kyle has this opportunity to share his thoughts about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Lakers. And in that moment, he said, thanks for all you do. That's what, that's, what you, that's what we do, though, isn't it? I mean, in the presence of somebody who, who's, who we get a little, bit ner- a, little, a little bit nervous. Do you remember back in the days when um, they used to have, uh, uh, like, those, those phone banks at airports? You know, you'd be like, telephone, pay phone, pay phone, pay phone, pay phone, pay phone, sometimes separated by a little guard, but oftentimes not. We had those at the Wellington Airport on the day that I was flying through there, Wellington, New Zealand, on the day I was flying through there, and they were doing the, like, Welcome to the airport, welcome to New Zealand premiere for uh, the Lord of the Rings stuff at the same time. And so they had a special plane out there and the stars from the Lord of the Rings were getting off of it and they were walking through this, this lovely lined, um, this lined place where all these people were, you know, autograph, autograph, taking pictures. I was standing at the phone bank and I was making a phone call and uh, next to me, some guy just pushes kind of right up next to the phone right next to me. He has a hat and he has sunglasses on and he's looking at a kind of short guy. And I'm, I'm, I'm on the phone, and then I just kind of glance over, and I look straight ahead, and I glance over, and I thought, that's Orlando Bloom. Orlando Bloom is the guy who plays Legolas in this. He, he looks way taller in the movie because he's near Hobbits, but he's a really short dude. And, but I, I kept staring at him because I didn't, didn't really know if it was him. Finally, our eyes met under his glasses. He kind of peeked over the top of his glasses. And he, look, he took his glasses off because I think he was like, oh, do you know me or do I know you? Or, and we looked at each other and I, I just did this. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he kind of turned away and kept talking and then he, he noticed I was still staring at him. He looked back and he was talking and I just mouthed, Legolas. <laughs> he hung up. He's out of there, right? And, you know, <laughs> creepy. <laughs> this is the way we act around celebrities. We love celebrities. They make such a huge difference. Kobe Bryant makes such a huge difference in our world. So many people are like, like this. And it's not just like that in the wider culture. We think this way in the church as well. I've told you a story about how I shook Tim Keller's hand, and I haven't washed it yet. I came out from a conference I attended, and out the side door came uh, uh, this mega preacher guy and he was surrounded by eight bodyguards and they were marching toward their green room and I kind of was trying to slip in so I could touch the anointed coat type thing and they were pushing me away. This is the way that we act. We think to ourselves uh, that these people are up on a pedestal and we wonder what we would do if that person died or left us. How would God's plan, how would God's kingdom move forward without them? Everything seems to depend so much on them but this passage shows that people don't make God's plans work. God makes God's plans work. 
Elijah's out of the picture. Next man up. I can do through Elisha more than I could ever do there. And I will. My plans are not thwarted by the absence of a particular person or situation. It doesn't have to be all perfect for me because I can do it. And if you step back from this passage, remember I told you earlier that Elijah, after he sees uh, Jezebel and sh she sends a messenger and I'm going to kill you and he takes off running, he runs all the way down south, climbs the side of Mount Sinai, sits in a cave and mopes. I'm the only one left. This revival, God, that you were supposed to do, you're not doing. All that stuff on karma was a waste of time. All is lost, just kill me now. And God comes to him and it's like, Elijah, don't you see? I have a plan, but it's not gonna be ultimately done through you. I got another one and he's on the way. Which is all to say that it's easy to think that God's plans for us depend on everything working out like we expect them to. We wonder how things can work out if that person is gone or that situation is different than we thought it would be. But God's plans for us don't depend on that person or that situation. God's plans depend on God. And he's gone nowhere. You know that, right? In the situation that you're in, he's he didn't leave. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful that you never leave us or forsake us. I'm thankful that you are true to your covenant. I'm thankful, Father, that the only requirement that you have for us is that we humble ourselves and receive what it is that you have to offer. Father, may, may rivers of li living water flow in us because we need it. We pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.